Coming to you live from the Morningstar Mission Sponsored Studios, this is Carl and Crew Mornings on 90.1 FM Moody Radio. Well, it's Ask the Experts Week, and we've got one of our favorites here today, Allie. One of the greatest men, really, I've known, and I mean that, uh, just a tremendous man of God. Dr. Erwin Lutzer is going to be with us here all morning long, and... Uh, Already had a great hour of content with him, and we're just overjoyed because one of the things that we want to do, Boom Crew, is help you take your next step with Jesus. And as we think about that, I think there's a lot of sticky pages in the scriptures, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so we're going to be taking your questions, and here's what we want to gear them toward. I know that there's going to be questions of human sexuality and all that, but even with regard to that, I think the the way we want to tilt this today is, why did God champion the nuclear family? Sometimes I think we hear a lot of pastors blazing away on the, you know, you can almost get you hear a hear a preacher hitting a pulpit going, you know, this transgenderism is not God's. Well, what what if why was God's plan the nuclear family? Yeah, why was that? Uh, so we're going to be taking questions here for Dr. Erwin Lutzer today, and he's got the Bible memorized from cover to cover. Wow. The entire thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, he's got, <laughs> he doesn't he's even got, have to open. All joking aside, he's got large portions of yes. it memorized. Uh, but we're going to jump in the deep end with Dr. Lutzer this morning. Ask the Expert has been an amazing week thus far. It really has. Oh, We've got my some, uh, you want to. You can always listen to our showcast for anything that you miss. Just text the word SHOW to 312-274-9624. Also have some fresh resources up on our social media. So if you are very shareable, if you miss anything, that's a good way to catch up as well. So you can check out Facebook and Instagram, Carlin Crew Mornings. Let's bring them in. Dr. Lutzer, good morning. Good morning to you, Carl. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about coming on this morning, I prayed that in the midst of a world that has so much pain, even the news that Jonathan just read, you know, accidents, fires, and of course, we're thinking about wars and everything else. I just prayed that today we'd be able to uplift people, help them to see God, and to remember that he has not abdicated his responsibility. You know, uh, I'm just plunging in here, but I've done some study on Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, the book that I wrote about uh, the church in Babylon, I discuss in detail what happened there when the people were in Babylon. But, you know, three times in the book of Jeremiah, God says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, a wicked king serving God. Now, that's hard to take in. It's hard for us to believe. But um, during this time when I'm with you, I've been praying that we'll help people to see beyond all of the riffraff, the shouting, the <laughs> yes. pain, and that they might see God. Yeah, that's really that's really good. I've got an unusual question for you, but it, having been a pastor for many years and still shepherding people both near and far, there's a lot of folks that approach the scriptures and they don't know what to do. And therefore, they find their Bibles collecting dust or getting sticky pages. Pastor, what is the main reason, reasons that keep people from the Word of God? They aren't all nefarious, for sure. What do you say, Pastor? Well, I think one of the reasons is because they really read the Bible and their mind is somewhere else. And if that happens, you know, it's kind of a 
ritual that you do is just something that you take in and then you say, well, I've done it, and it's not transformative. What I tell people is this. When you open the Bible and you read it, do not stop reading until you have some truth for that day. Oh, good. In other words, what you do is you ask the text questions. What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me? Is there a command here for me to obey? Is there an encouragement? Is this a promise? And so what you do is all day you take that with you. So if you read the Bible, close it, and leave without anything to take with you for the day, it'll become a ritual and eventually you'll just stop reading. Yeah. You know, just to give an example today, for whatever reason, I've been thinking of these words in Psalm 32, a psalm that I memorized many years ago. It says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I shall counsel you with my eye upon you. So I was praying before we came on the air, saying, Lord, counsel me with your eye upon me <laughs> so that I might be a blessing to others. So that's going to be my great. my truth for the day. But if you, and, and I'm reading through Joshua, and every time, yesterday I was thinking about Gilgal taking away the reproach of sin and the past. So you never put the Bible down without something to take with you. I love you. that. I love that. Uh, another quick thought here that's coming to my heart. I did a study recently on the word meditation, and the Hebrew word is decha. And I was surprised to find out that we have misapplied this word meditation because it is almost exclusively to be used in terms of audibleizing the truth. It means to mutter or to speak or to sing rather than just collecting something in your mind. Why is that so important to even have the Word of God on your lips as it's properly applied? Well, one of the things that has to happen is that the Word of God has to pour through our minds and hearts. So when you speak it, you are basically forced to think about what you are speaking about. God is honored when we give his word back to him. So it's another way. It's not wrong to simply meditate. You know, if you're laid up and you're sick and you can't speak, your your mind is still on <laughs> the word right. of God. But if you have the opportunity to speak the word of God, it's another way that it um, enables us to meditate in our hearts. And um, that's actually the missed art today because... We are so busy and so distracted by social media and all, we cannot concentrate long enough to give God 10 or 15 minutes in the morning when we begin our day giving it to Him and uh, meditating on some truth that we take with us. I love that. That is fantastic. Dr. Lutzer, we're off to a good start here, yes, Allie. Yes, we are, and we are ready for your questions. If you have questions about spiritual life, about the Bible, let's let's get them in. You can text us, 312-274-9624. Text your questions for Pastor Lutzer to 312-274-9624. When you don't know, who better to ask than an expert? You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. 
Little special announcement for you. We've been mentioning this uh, pre-share gift, something we're doing a little bit different. I, I talked to my mom through this because my mom was able to take advantage of this, which was fun. She sent me a text message and she That's said, so cool. are you doing share this year? And I said, well, mom, and I said this in a text. I said, yes, we are. And if you give early, you can give a copy of Carl's book. It's funny to say that on radio and actually put it in. I was chuckling <laughs> as I texted this to my mom. Give early so you can get a copy of Carl's book. So she went and she gave her pre-share gift and she's going to get a copy of the seven resolutions, which I know she's going to love. So if you want to be like my mom and you want to give early and you want to get that book so that you can enjoy it, or if you already have it, gift it to somebody. This is the pre-share offer only. So once share starts, this expires, but be like my mom, give early, just text the word crew or no, I'm sorry, text prime. We want you to be a pump primer, text prime to 312- Two seven four nine six two four. Just text the word Prime. Uh, Pastor Lutzer, we're in the middle of Ask the Expert, by the way, Boom Crew, and we've got the expert today, Dr. Lutzer. Uh, this is from Philip, a tremendous man of God. I love this kid. Uh, how do we best pray through God's word as a spiritual discipline? Great question. Pa- every pastor loves to hear these kind of questions, Pastor Lutzer. We really do love those kinds of questions, and we love the kind of Philips that are in our churches. But first of all, to Allie's point, Carl, in my hands right now is a book entitled The Seven Resolutions. (laughs) And so that's the one that is being offered for pre-share. And I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but at the back of the book it says, Join God, Think Truth, Kill Sin, choose friends, take risks, focus effort, and redeem time. Now, I need to say to your audience that there are many books out there on resolutions, making New Year's resolutions, which all of us break. This book is different because in it, you also emphasize the relationship between discipline and grace. And uh, I could speak more to that, but I'm going to answer your other question, Philip's question, right now. Here's the point. I don't think that you can pray through the whole Bible. It becomes very difficult, especially those long narratives and stories in the Old Testament. But what I learned long ago, which is transforming, is to pray Scripture. Now, let me give you an example. There are parents listening right now who pray for their children. What do they pray? Lord, bless them, keep them, give them health help them to do well in school, keep them from evil. All that is wonderful. But just think of this. Imagine a parent praying for his child. Let's suppose that we're praying for Philip, since he answered the question. And it is my prayer that, Philip, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Mm. Now, think about that prayer. Yes. At the end, you don't have to say, if it be thy will, because you are actually praying a prayer that was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the Apostle Paul, and you are praying right smack in the middle of God's will. Beautiful. Now, you can take especially... Uh, many of the Psalms, you can pray through those easily. You know, you can pray through Psalm 23 and, of course, uh, dozens and dozens of others. So what you always want to do, though, 
is to give praise to God, always focus on him, focus on his promises, and what you'll find throughout the Psalms is over and over again, you find that. And then there are other passages, of course, and what you need to do is to develop the habit of praying Scripture and giving God's praise and God's words back to him. I have exalted my word above my name. I think there's a verse like that. It doesn't mean that the word of God is more precious or greater than the name of God. It means when you pray my word, you are praying my will back to me, and God is glorified. That is fantastic. Giving hope directly from the source. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. I want you to join our prayer crew as we move towards share. We've been inviting you in, and thank you to so many of you. We yeah. already have some half hours already filling up, which is awesome. We've got lots of slots still available. If you're willing to sign up for a 30-minute slot to pray as we are in share, we're, as, we're looking for 10 prayer, prayer warriors per half hour that we're on air, and we're on air for quite a few hours. So if you want to be a part of that, we'd be so grateful. We'll send you the prayer points. Just text the word CREW to 312 274 9624. Text the word CREW, C R E W, to 312 274 9624. Great question came in here, Pastor. It's somewhat technical, but it's got some implications. The city of David often referred to when it was um, uh, Zion was renamed City of David, but in Luke 2, it says Bethlehem is called the City of David. What say you, Pastor? Well, Both are really the city of David for this reason. Bethlehem is spoken of in the Bible as the place where David was born. That's where he was anointed. So it became attached to his name. Later on, when Jerusalem was conquered, of course, under David, then it became known as the city of David. So because David is rather famous, guess what? He had more he than one city. Named after him. <laughs> that's, a, that's the truth. And it's the lineage that we um, obviously find that Jesus, the Son of God, is born. Okay, uh, let's get some more here. We've got, boy, it gets a, this is a tricky one, and this is great because this is right up the pastor's alley here. My wife says she thinks that the Bible is true and that Jesus really lived. But I, but I know she doesn't have a relationship with him, and she doesn't know Jesus in her heart personally. I pray for her every day. I do Bible studies with her and our kids on the weekends. What else can I do to help her in her faith journey? Pastor, what do you say? Well, first of all, thank you for having a Bible study with her, and if she's involved in that, I think that within time she's going to see that there is such a thing as a personal relationship with Jesus. But the problem that this uh, man uh, describes is very common. You'd be surprised at the number of people who go to church who believe that Jesus lived. They believe that he died. They might even believe that he is a savior. But that does not mean that they are saved. Amen. In salvation, there has to be a repentance from sin, a recognition of sinfulness, and then a trust in Jesus, and that's what makes the personal connection. Just last night, my wife was with a woman who uh, belongs to another, actually, Eastern religion, and this woman was saying that this, this guru whom she follows helps her to be more loving, more kind, etc., etc. 
Well, isn't that wonderful? But that guru cannot take away sin. And you know, Carl, the older I get, and I'm probably a little bit older than you, though you might catch up eventually. I will. (laughs) The fact is that if people do not recognize their sinfulness, they probably will not savingly believe on Jesus. It is conviction of sin that drives people to a Savior. So what this man has to do is to continue to have these Bible studies, to continue to pray, but also to help her to see that her need is so great that only Jesus can solve her problem. Uh, One added thought here, Pastor, I did a deep dive on the power of the Holy Spirit a number of years ago, and it, it dawned on me, according to Jesus' words himself, Jesus never led anyone to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the regenerating power. He pulls down veils. He convicts the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. This gave me two thoughts. One is the pressure's off. We don't save our kids. We don't save our spouse. That's the Holy Spirit's work. But what what can we do, Pastor, to, to unleash uh, how am I even trying to r- capture this? We don't even unleash the power of the Spirit. But is there something we do to agree with the Spirit's work in a loved one's life? First of all, I want to underline what you have said. Today, we are talking to parents who think that they can convert their child if they get the child to pray the right prayer. Well, the fact is, they can't convert their child. We can't convert our children. Conversion is God's business. All that we can do is to be able to show them their need, show them the beauty of Jesus, and trust the Holy Spirit to do his work beyond that. Uh, We cannot coerce them into faith and get them to admit how sinful they are under pressure just so that we can have the, the feeling that they are converted. God has to do the conversion. You know, Carl, when I was teaching preaching years ago, I would take my students out to a cemetery and teach them to preach to the dead. Now, the color drained from their face and so forth, and they didn't, but I did. (laughs) I chose a tombstone and called for the person to rise from the dead. Thankfully, he didn't. But here's the point. What I was trying to do, and then afterwards, I would give an exposition of the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And I said, students, when you preach on Sunday and they're unconverted there, remember you are preaching to dead people. And then what we are asking is that eyes be o- blind eyes be opened, deaf ears be healed, and the dead rise. I said, how many of those miracles can you do? They said, none. Then we got on our knees in the cemetery and dedicated ourselves to unrelenting dependence on God in the proclamation of the gospel, because only God yes. can save. Amen. Wow. I got to tell you, this first half hour has been one for the record books. Hmm. This is gospel, Allie. Oh, yeah. This is, this is so Christocentric. This man-centered preaching has got to fade away. That could be part and parcel of what's led to our demise as a nation, Pastor, morally, is that we've had a fascination 
with the preacher rather than the Savior? Well, it's deeper than that. The fact is that we are told that God loves us, he accepts us as we are, etc., which gives the impression that even in our sin we are accepted by God. So if you were to ask me what is the one thing missing in so much preaching today, it is a lack of preaching about sin and helping people that their conscience might be stimulated and they are seen as helpless in the presence of God. Now, how many sermons do you listen to where that comes through? Uh, You know, and and the answer is often very few. I sometimes ask at pastor's conference, how many times have you preached an entire sermon on the doctrine of hell? Well, usually the answer is no. Now, at Moody Church, and I've said this before, that um, twice, I think, in my ministry there, I preached an entire sermon on hell. I could probably, I, I found it difficult to sleep the night before. Mm. I mean, but we're dealing here with a God who is revealed in Scripture, and we have to bow before him whether we like what he does or not. And as long as we tiptoe around the hard edges of the Christian faith and preach only the positive aspects, people will think that they really. It's nice to believe in Jesus. It's nice to have him as a savior, but they don't understand the depth of their sin and what Jesus did for him Mm. on the cross. The reason that the cross is so terrible is because God's love is so great and hell is so terrifying. Yeah, Pastor, this is so good. Uh, We're going to have a question in a moment, but a quick comment. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll on Moody Radio, and he said the same admission. And by the way, this was a pretty recent sermon that he gave, um, said that I have have spared you messages on hell sometimes to your own peril. And I was moved by that. Um, And it has me choked up right now. Get to know the team behind the scenes. Check out Carl and Crew Mornings on Facebook and Instagram. Okay, we're going back to the phone lines. Pastor Lutzer is with us here today. And uh, Allie, you've got a question teed up. Yeah, this came in from somebody who said, Pastor Lutzer, I remember a couple years ago, you said you were going to preach on the fear of the Lord. So they're asking you to make good on that. Maybe not a full sermon right now, Pastor, but maybe a quicker answer. Well, isn't that interesting? I'm sure that I made that promise. And you know, four or five years ago, I preached the graduation address for Moody Bible Institute, and I preached on the fear of the Lord. Hmm. So I did make good on my promise. There you go. go. There you go. (laughs) Here's the point. We have taken the word fear, and we have so denuded it that it just means reverence. Yes, When the Bible says very clearly, I'm thinking, for example, even of 1 Peter, where it says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of your life and so forth. When actually, you know, it says this, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And he's talking even in the context of Christians Now, it's true, we don't have to cower before the Lord in fear, in the sense that we are covered with the blood of Christ, legally we are perfect and all. But this idea 
that God is endlessly tolerant with his own people because he does love us, and that there should be no fear of disobedience. You see, that's part of the previous discussion we had just a moment ago, where the gospel is so uh, watered down that it's come to Jesus, say this prayer, and actually it's all much deeper than that, but also the fear of the Lord. You know, what does the Bible say? Our God is a consuming fire. And therefore, what we need to do is to rethink our entire view of God. He is not the God that oftentimes is uh, portrayed. You know, The Economist, which is a very uh, influential magazine, a year ago had an article entitled, Nearer My God to Me. And it talked about how God is constantly changing, and that instead of saying, you know, may it be on earth as it is in heaven, we should reverse that, and we should say, as it is on earth, so let it be in heaven. Well, in I other words, that, we create not. God. <laughs> That's a scary Now, that thought. is just so absurd. I know that no evangelical would go there. But we have the same kind of idea that we want to shape God according to our liking. And what we have to do is to bow in reverence and fear, because God severely disciplines his own children who walk away. In fear, uh, Peter says, conduct yourselves. And that's not only the place where it mentions fear in the New Testament. Most people say, well, yeah, the Old Testament, but not the New. Yes, in the New as well. And I think we should fear disobedience. You know, I was given a message uh, Sunday out of Hebrews 4, and uh, the writer of Hebrews calls us to be terrified that we might not enter the rest of Jesus Christ. And Walvard and Zuck, I was looking at some of their commentary, and they they said that it's a—it um, almost gets me crying here, guys. They said that a, a, a healthy fear of judgment will drive us into the arms of grace— Quick comment on that, Pastor. It really helps our our robustness and our dependence on God, does it not? It really does. And, you know, people may come to God with uh, mixed motives. I often think of the prodigal son. He came home not because he loved his father, but because he was hungry. Yeah. And sometimes it is those trials of life that really drive us to Christ, and God uses those to drive us to himself. So... You're absolutely right that the fear of judgment. Now, I wrote a book on the judgment seat of Christ. It's entitled Your Eternal Reward. And I have to say that there are many theologians who disagree with me, and I acknowledge that in the book. But I take the judgment seat of Christ very seriously. Are you talking the the Bema seat or the great white throne? No, no, the Bema seat. The great white throne is for unbelievers only. That's Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But I'm talking about the fact that we will stand. This is what it says, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. So this idea that because we are perfect in Christ, that we're going to sail through. By the way, I preached on that at a conference, and the person who followed me 
the pastor totally disagreed. And he said, the worst we will get at the judgment seat, he said, is like being hit on the wrist with a wet noodle. I think that the loss of rewards and the lack of thank you from Jesus is going to be very severe. Now, of course, once we enter into eternity, everyone is going to bring glory to God. It's like a chandelier where some people will be brighter than others, because the Bible says, you know, if you're faithful, you're given more responsibility. Everybody happy, everybody giving praise to God. But the way we live is very important. And, you know, the older I get, the closer I am to the Bema, the more I ask God that I will live every day with the Bema in mind. Yeah. Quick question on that one, Pastor. It, there is a dilution of the Bema Seat judgment. That's where Christians will be called to account. We know that there will be sadness there because some were going to shrink back at his coming. So that's in play. How long might that Bema experience be? We don't have specificity, but it's enough to give us a quaking in our boots. You know, we don't know how long it's going to be, and we also don't know how Jesus is able to evaluate each person, millions, over a period of time. What we do know is that after the Bema, you, of course, have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and at that point, we all go to the Mount of Olives, and we come back with Christ, and it says that those, this is Revelation 19, I believe, that those who descend are arrayed in white garments. They come after him. And so eternity is going to be okay. But I remember talking to a man who said, I'm a carnal Christian. And as long as I get into heaven, even if I can sit in the back seat, the back row, and if I have a little shack, I'll be happy. Isn't that interesting? But he's the kind of person who is not satisfied with a little shack on earth. But he thinks he's going to be happy with a little shack in heaven. But I said, what if you think of it this way? The reason you're in the back row, to use your illustration, is because you have disappointed Jesus. Doesn't that give you some sadness that you're living your life for yourself? That's convicting and and spot on biblically. Get your info from a source you can trust. It's Ask the Experts Week with Carlin Crew Mornings. You just heard our friend Chris Brooks talking about Share, which is coming up. Wow, we are a week out. So if you want to be a part of our prayer crew, we are assembling a small army of, of boom crewers who are willing to pray for a half hour at a time. You'll be praying in your home, your kitchen, wherever you happen to be, your drive to work. And there will be others praying with you, praying in the same direction, praying for God to move here, to move in Chicagoland, praying for revival, praying for the gospel, because that's what we're all about here. So if you're willing to sign up for that 30-minute slot and be on our crew, just text the word CREW, C-R-E-W, to 312-274-9624. Text CREW to 312-274-9624. All right. We've got a question teed up for you, Pastor. Well, we've got someone who's asking, uh, where do we go right after we die? Well, like the thief on the cross, and by the way, Don't use that story to put off the day of salvation for yourself. There's only one time in all the Bible, one story about a deathbed conversion, 
one story to give people hope, but at the same time, only one so that we are not presumptuous. But that night, the thief was with Christ in paradise. And there are some people who write me letters who say, oh, we die, we have soul sleep. The soul sleeps until the day of resurrection. And what we should do is to take that statement and make it into a question. And Jesus says, today you shall be with me in paradise, implying the answer is no. Well, actually, though, in the Greek text, it says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then in answer to the question, is there other evidence that we go immediately to be with Jesus? This is powerful. In the first chapter of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 23, you remember what the Apostle Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, but to be with you is necessary, and so forth. And then he says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, if Paul thought that his soul was going to sleep until the day of resurrection, what's the advantage of dying now? Mm. In other words, he's not going to be with Christ anyway for a long time. No, immediately from this life to the next. I was just with some friends, and there is a man who wrote books on prophecy who died recently, and apparently he died of a heart attack. But before he died, he said, I didn't know that heaven was this beautiful. Now, we shouldn't go by these kinds of experiences because sometimes near-death experiences are deceptive. But there's but years ago, when people died without anesthetic, they would already see the glories of heaven. Today, of course, that seldom happens wow. because people are, uh, you know, they have various drugs and so forth. So... In my book, One Minute After You Die, I tell the story of a girl who was on a couch in Ohio, in uh, Iowa, and the pastor came, and she was dying. She said, I want to go in, but Gramps goes ahead of me. And then a little later, I want to go in, but Mimi is going ahead of me. Well, then he came back later, and she had died. But he wondered, who's Gramps? Who's Mimi? He did investigation and discovered that Gramps was a friend of the family who lived in uh, in New York. Mimi had moved down south, but both of them died that Saturday morning. So heaven is oh as word. close to us as the <laughs> next breath, and we go from this life to the next, ushered into his presence, and uh, all on the basis of the merit of Jesus. That is a powerful story and a amazing work, by the way. One Minute After You Die is... How many copies of that have gone out there, Pastor? About three-quarters of a million. Wow. Yeah, it's touching wow. a lot of lives. New to the show? We're glad you're here. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. God is faithful, and we are talking about His faithfulness and celebrating that this week. Ask the experts this week. Today, Dr. Erwin Lutzer... And we're taking all your questions right now. Just text your questions on spiritual life, on heaven, on the Bible, 312-274-9624. The question on the table right now is, now that we're under the new covenant, what do we do with the Old Testament? Many people, that says this questioner, are now saying that it kind of it's out the window, that why do we even bother to pay attention to the Old Testament? 
What do you say, Pastor? Well, first of all, that's a very interesting question and a good question. (laughs) What we must recognize is that in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of laws. There was the civil law, you know, if your donkey strays over to your neighbor, this is what you do, etc. Obviously, those laws don't apply because we're not in the land of Israel. It's a different covenant. That's true. Secondly, there is what is known as the ceremonial law, which was done away in Christ, all of the lambs that were slain and so forth. And the book of Hebrews is relevant here. But there is the moral law. And that has an omnitemporal aspect to it. And people say to us, well, why do you pick and choose? You know, the big contention regarding homosexual behavior, for example. And people say, well, you know, do you have a suit that has two different kinds of thread? You know, and and so what they want to do is to take the civil laws and say, since we don't obey them, what about the moral laws? Well, the moral laws obviously transfer, and the reason we know that is for a number of different reasons, but let me read a couple of verses here and then make a few more comments. Paul says in 1 Timothy, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that uh, the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinner. For, unhold, for those who are unholy, profane, those who strike fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So the point is that the moral law clearly transfers over Maybe I can put it this way. We are under the laws of Illinois here, the speed limit and so forth. Everything is determined by the state of Illinois. When we go over to Wisconsin, we may be under laws that are different from a different uh, legislator, but there is obviously continuity. The speed limit here, I suspect, is the same as the speed limit in Wisconsin, even though we change administrations and laws, there is continuity. Great analogy. And that's the way we have to see the Old Testament and the New. Yeah, great analogy. Boom Crew, celebrate what God is doing in you. This is Carlin Crew Mornings. Ask the experts all week long. Today, Dr. Lutzer, you got questions about the Word of God. And really what we're aimed at here is these questions that are going to really spur us on to love and good deeds. That's what we're called to in the scriptures. So let's get after it here. Great question about this whole jewel in the crown thing. What does that mean? What do we do with the crowns? Jewel in the crown thing. (laughs) (laughs) What do you make of it? Thank you, Pastor Lutzer, for being our special guest to ask the expert today. Uh, Tackle this one for us. Well, you know, the Bible does speak about different crowns, the crown of righteousness and the martyr's crown. For example, those who die as martyrs, they receive crowns. But here's the point. I believe that the rewards in heaven are not the crowns, because you're absolutely right. We are going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. We will pick them up later because the Bible says that we're going to rule with him. But I believe that the real rewards have to do with positions of responsibility within the kingdom. 
And so Jesus said, if you're faithful over a small city, I'll give you authority over a larger city and more cities and the person who gets 10 cities because of faithfulness. Interestingly, Jesus recognizes that we're going to be rewarded according to our gifts. In other words, if you're a one-talent person, you aren't going to be expected to, uh, you know, increase to 10 talents, but you will be expected to be then two talents or three talents. And then there are those who are given five talents and they gain five talents more. The point is that rewards will be based on what we did with what God gave us and faithfulness in our calling and in our ministry and in our lives. And that, I think, has more to do with positions of responsibility than the number of jewels in our crown. The expression jewels in our crown, I think, has to do with the Old Testament reference to the fact that um, there are going to be, indeed, jewels in the crown. I'm not up to date on that passage, but I think it's positions of responsibility. Yeah, good stuff. Pastor Lutzer, I've got one that is going to take you all of 15 seconds. (laughs) I've accepted Jesus, but never been baptized. Is it okay to get baptized at this late age of 53? Absolutely. It takes me less than 15 seconds to answer that. (laughs) Yeah, there is. The only only stipulation is if if you can't go under the water, <laughs> you know, That's... you might have water poured on your head. But it seems to me that somebody in his 50s should have no trouble at all being baptized. And of course, as people might know, my view of baptism actually has to do with going under the water. Romans 6, it's a picture of our death with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And that is the symbolism of baptism. It doesn't save but it is an expression of our testimony for Christ. Yeah, it's wonderful. Pastor, the only grave error that this man uttered in this question is, he says he's at the late age of 53, and you and I would call him a spring chicken. <laughs> oh, he he hasn't really found his groove no, yet. No, no. We don't even know if he's identified all of his spiritual gifting. Coming to you live from the Morningstar Mission Sponsor Studios, this is Carl and Crew Mornings on 90.1 FM Moody Radio. Ask the expert all week long today, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, one of our favorite. Love this man, Godward man. We've had an amazing, amazing morning. If you're just tuning in, not too late. Get your questions in if they're getting somewhat similar to one another because we're getting a lot of them in and we've just begun. Now the crush is going to hit us for a couple hours here. Uh, we're we're going to batch them together as best we can. A- Allie has a PhD in question batching, it would appear, <laughs> because she does a good job with them. Okay, let's jump into this question. A little obtuse, but a good one. Why is the burning of animal sacrifices a pleasant aroma to God? I think that's a that's a great question. First of all, let me say that it's not the smell. It is really what it represents, namely the substitution atonement. So when you think of the burning of sacrifices, you have to go immediately to the cross. And there you discover that on the one hand, the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus was paying for the sins of the world as a substitutionary atonement. And the Bible says that God was pleased to bruise him. 
and that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was pleasing to God. Now, God is very complex because on the one hand, the cross of Christ, of course, was done by evil people, evil hands, crucified Christ. But at the same time, when Jesus died, finally, his last words are, Father, into thy hands, thy hands, I commit my spirit. So even when believers are in the hands of wicked men, ultimately they are in the hands of God. Now, I know I've said various things that maybe need to be unpacked, but the main thing to understand is that it is the sweet aroma of a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Uh, another question along that line that just dropped into my head, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a classic passage of what true worship looks like to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. Why is the metaphor of sacrifice and laying down and taking up cross not only central to biblical Christianity and authentic faith, but to almost every world religion? What, what is this? What's going on here? Well, actually, I think, Carl, you've asked two different questions. Okay. Let's talk about the question of blood being offered in other religions. And what uh, college kids sometimes do is they go online and they say, oh, Christianity is like all the other religions of the world. The other religions of the world require blood, too. Yeah. Yes. But only in Christianity does God become the sacrifice. Other gods need others to sacrifice for them. God becomes the sacrifice. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So in light of the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life and laid it down for us, what could be more reasonable, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, the reasonable sacrifice is for us to be willing to lay down our lives for him. Yeah. That, of course, is the calling. That's what it means when it talks about taking up the cross and following Christ. Someone has well said, I think it was Bonhoeffer, that the idea of taking up the cross and following Jesus sounds like a marvelous idea until you remember that it took him to Golgotha. Yeah. And so that's the calling of the believer, and it only is reasonable, as Paul says it is, because of what Jesus did in our behalf. Yes. Uh, let's take this question right now. Yeah, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all one, but it also says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Are there actually two separate beings that will be sitting next to each other? You know what? Sometimes the best questions are the most obvious or simple ones where you go, okay, how, how would you explain that, Pastor Lutzer? Well, thank you, Ali, for saying that this is a simple question. Did you say that? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's maybe not the, point to, the point to be made is simply this, that there is only one spirit that pervades the whole universe. And the hub of God is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. It pervades the entire uh, universe and beyond. One day our granddaughter asked the question, you know, is God bigger than the universe, or does he just make himself fit in? <laughs> you know, the children, right. they ask those kinds of questions. Well, God is infinite, and we can't get our minds around it. That being said, he is revealed in three different persons. That's the best word we can use. 
So it is not the Father who is crucified on the cross. It was Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus, the Son, did not have a permanent body until he was born in Bethlehem, and deity was joined to humanity forever. This man, because he is a a priest, the Bible says in Hebrews, he endures forever. That's why Jesus can sit on the right hand of God, because his body can be there, and uh, we shall see him, we shall see his nail prints, and we shall recognize him. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is just limited to his body. He is, of course, part of God, of very God. If you're finding it difficult to unpack all that, well, just rejoice in this. These issues have been discussed throughout 2,000 <laughs> years of church history, and all of us still find that it's a tremendous mystery. That's why Paul wrote, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh. So that's the best we can do to try to understand the fact that there is one God but revealed in three persons. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was reading last night something, Pastor, uh, that was, um, it's, a, it's a historian that's pulled some of the best works out of the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, and he might say, well, were there good works? And he said, his statement was simply that, and he had some great citations, that what, what we received best from the Dark Ages and Middle Ages was the unknowableness of God and his infiniteness, and uh, we've sure, with our intellect, tried to minimize and make him manageable, but he is beyond compare. And that's hard. To, it's hard to even, it's, this is why the psalmist had a hard time describing who God is, Pastor, right? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, when you stop to think of it, even as I get older, God has much mystery. Yeah. I mean, if you ask the question of how can a sovereign God allow all this evil that we know that he could stop, and you begin to put all this into perspective, it's mind-boggling. The Bible has enough evidence for those who are open to belief. But for those who are dishonest doubters, who are closed to belief, it has enough mystery for them to turn away. So the question is, does the mystery draw us to God, or does the mystery drive us away from God? We have compelling evidence that Jesus spoke authoritatively and was who he claimed to be, and that's what we go on. And our faith is therefore solid, but at the same time, it's sure not without mystery. Yeah. Yeah, that's why even things like uh, open theism and, and discussions of the Godhead in that manner are really an attempt to try to grapple with some of the mystery of God. Got to go into work? Don't worry. Check out the Carl and Crew Showcast wherever you like to stream. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. I apologize, Boom Crew. I got us a little derailed there on open theism. Back to a former question that we had. Did Jesus descend into literal hell? Pastor Lutzer. I don't believe that he did. I think that the word Hades oftentimes does refer to the netherworld, so to speak. Oftentimes, it just refers to the grave. And so, obviously, Jesus went to heaven because he was there to welcome the thief. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. And there are theories that I sometimes hear about Jesus went into hell and 
proclaim deliverance. This is based on a passage in First uh, Peter that is very confusing that we'd have to have open Bibles to go through to understand. But uh, Jesus ascended to the Father. As a matter of fact, the last words on the cross are, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus did descend into hell in the sense that he bore hell in the three hours on the cross. The first three hours he suffered under the hands of men. The last three hours in darkness, suffering under the hands of God, and compressed into that darkness was hell. But when he died, his spirit went to God. If it went to Hades, some kind of a hell, well, it sure didn't stay there long because Jesus, when he died, committed himself to the Father, and he was there to welcome the thief. Yeah, good, great answer. There is a distinction between eternal lake of fire and Sheol or Hades, for sure. Okay, Pastor, on to this one. Can a believer be demon-possessed? Well, you're absolutely right the way you asked the question before the break, and that is, is there a better word? Are there Christians who are harassed by Satan, oftentimes controlled by demonic spirits? Yes. The reason I don't like the word possession is because possession implies ownership. Mm -hmm. And what we must do is to recognize that um, uh, the demons do not own any believer. So they do not possess them in that sense. But are there Christians who have to deal with demonic spirits? The answer is yes. The reason that distinction is important is that Christians have to understand that they are fighting this battle from the standpoint of victory. In other words, Jesus broke the power of Satan. Second, um, Colossians chapter 2 says that when he died, he took all of our sins, nailed them to the cross. You know, in those days when somebody died, when they were crucified, their crimes were uh, above the cross. That's why Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Jesus took all the sins, put them on a bulletin board, figuratively speaking, died for them. And it says he disarmed all principalities and powers. So the greatest thing that Christians need to understand is the thorough victory of Christ. So we fight these battles from the standpoint of his victory. And so Yes, there are Christians that are harassed, but let's not use the word possession. Yeah, I love uh, what we find in Ephesians. I've gone to this often, Pastor. I'd like you to make a quick comment because Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Isn't it interesting, guys, that anger is the issue here? And then he says this, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil in the New American Standard. And I believe in the NIV, it says foothold. But in the ESV, it says opportunity. I like, I don't know the original Greek word there, but I like the fact that it does not imply possession. But we are warned, aren't we, Pastor? We, we, we ought not be trifling with demonic forces. In fact, the Greek word is topos. Yes, it, it is means topos. don't give them a place. Yeah. And uh, that's, of course, very important. And anger oftentimes does give demons a place. 
And even when you see the murders that are uh, done oftentimes in such a rage, clearly those people have given the demon a place. And so don't let the sun go down on your wrath, but rather do not, and uh, thereby do not give Satan an opportunity, a tapas, a foot in the door. Yeah, it's good stuff. Talking about Jesus and having fun while doing it. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. All right, let's get back at it here, guys. we got uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, one of our favorite. Love this guy. Man, I can go on a road trip with Pastor Lutzer. That would be fun. Carl and Janine and, and Pastor Lutzer and Rebecca on a road trip out to California and back. Just talking about it. Wouldn't that be fun? What do you think of that, radio Pastor content? Lutzer? Are you good with right? a road trip? He might not. <laughs> Well, if people go to our website, Moody Media, they'll discover that, God willing, I'm going to be leading a cruise on the Danube River in <laughs> September. Awesome. And there's room for other people. So since you would like to do a road trip, this would be a river trip. Oh, there you go. That's a great, <laughs> like that's a great way to go. Okay. All um, right. Now, in answer to your question, yes. and I know you want to get to Matthew 7, right don't now. you? Right now. Right now. Carl, you're absolutely right. This is scary. But we have to understand this in context. Jesus has just been talking about false prophets. He's talking about those who claim to be able to do miracles and so forth. And he's saying that their fruit, however, is fraudulent. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is saying is that verbal commitment to him is insufficient. You can say that you're a prophet, You can even do miracles, which may be fake, or even miracles done by Satan. Paul mentions that as uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if I remember correctly. He says that the working of false prophets is in accordance with the devil. So you can do all that and still not have savingly repented and believed. And he says that the one who is saved is the one who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And what is his will? Well, the work of God is to believe on the one whom he sent, Jesus said in John chapter 6. So if you want to know what the will of God is, this is the will of my Father, that you believe on the one whom he has sent. So this isn't a work salvation text where you have to figure out what the will of God is in order to be saved. The will of God is that you believe on Jesus, but the possibility of deception is frightening, that you can have people do all these things, miracles, claim to cast out demons, and then I have thought of this passage many times. Just imagine this. You're out in a field somewhere, and Jesus closes the door to heaven and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And those are the last words that you hear 
forever frightening. Yeah, in a in a really healthy way. Pastor, we're just going to I'm going to do this right now. Um there are some right now listening that are being prompted by the Holy Spirit to step out of the shadows of spiritual darkness and into the light. Would you please give the gospel right here right now for this precious person listening saying, "How shall I be born again?" First of all, I want to say this that there is no one listening who is beyond the possibility of redemption. I'm talking to people who've lived immorally, people who have uh, faked it for their lives, hypocrites. Jesus accepts all of them through repentance, turning from sin right now. There are people who are driving who should maybe pull off on the side of the road and pray. There are people in their homes, in their offices. What they need to do is to turn from their sins and say, Jesus, I now trust you as my Savior. I give my life to you. I hold nothing back. I want to receive the gift of eternal life and the gift of forgiveness. And I want to begin to walk with you genuinely and not simply be a fake Christian. And so that's what they need to do. And I believe that many are doing that right now as God has used his word to show them that they are not real Christians, that they do not have reality. It is all formality. It is all words. It is not genuine. Repentance and faith in Jesus who died for sinners on our behalf. So right now, I just want to ask you, are you willing to... Agree with God. Agree with God that you are a sinner and that you need salvation. Good, my friend. And in truth, Jesus said, count the cost of the tower before you go build this. I think the acid test and the proof of whether or not that's true is your life, past, present, future. Are you willing to let God take what has and what will be and let him build his life into you? Everything. You've given it all to him. If your heart answer is yes, you know that God is real because you feel a load of bricks being thrown off your shoulders right now. You feel hope welling up in your heart. I want to pray and thank God for you. Father, thank you for using this discussion in this moment right now to call this man or woman out of darkness and into the light. What an awesome thing. What an awesome thing. And Lord, as they confess that they are sinners, that they need a Savior, that they repent of their sin, turn around and go a whole new way and give everything they are to you, thank you that you promised to complete this work to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And they can have full confidence that nothing can snatch them from the hand of God. Your gifts and your callings are irrevocable. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's you, we want to help you right now. Just text the word welcome. We want to send you a link that's going to give you some uh, next steps, a little bit more explanation. Just text the word welcome to 312-274-9624. Text the word welcome to 
274-9624. Important moment here, for sure. Important moment. Tremendous. And uh, again, just please text in. We want to help you in your these first beautiful steps with Jesus Christ. We'll shout out the last four numbers here in a little bit just to say we see you there. Welcome to 312-274-9624. I think I'll do a couple right now. 3312, welcome to the family. 9615, welcome. It's good to have you. Your spiritual pit stop to keep you going in the race. We're Carl and Crew Mornings. We are inviting you in to one of the most strategic, one of the most strategic efforts that we could ask you to join. And it is praying for share. So we're inviting you to be a part of our prayer crew. We've probably got 400 some slots left to go. We're trying to get 10 prayers to cover each half hour that we as a morning show team will be on air. We'll send you some prayer prompts to kind of tell you what to pray for. That's always helpful. Some, if somebody just says, hey, will you pray? Good question is asked because, yes, what would you like me to pray for? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big one about uh, informed intercession. Exactly. If, you so got to have some something to know what you're praying for. will be that. So if you're willing to grab a 30-minute slot. You do not have to come here. You can pray at home. You can pray on a walk, wherever you happen to be. Grab a 30-minute slot that works for you by texting the word CREW to 312-274-9624. Happy to report that we now have six of our half hours now completely full, which is awesome, but many more slots to fill. So text CREW to 312-274-9624. Also, welcome to the family, 2906 98 34, 96, 15, and 33, 12. Welcome. Perfect timing on this question, Allie. Yes, so this is a, a common one that gets raised. So once we're saved and we are in Christ, can you lose your salvation? This person who texted in and says, I'm going to a different church now that says if I, you know, if you don't behave and kind of walk the straight and narrow, then you could lose your salvation. What say you, Pastor well, Lutzer? Well, I want to say something. Oh, Both Pastor in? Lutzer and okay. I are in trouble if that's the case. Pastor, <laughs> go ahead. You know, the reason that churches preach that is, first of all, there are some texts that might lead us to believe that that's the case. But the other reason is because they fear that if somebody knows that they are eternally secure, they're going to go out and flaunt their freedom and live uh, sinfully. And that is a possibility. But what is overlooked is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that when we savingly believe... Our desire is toward God. As a matter of fact, he implants within us a love for God. And when we do sin, we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. And so the true believer is Godward in his affection, in his desire to please. And that transforming power needs to be emphasized and... um, you know, it is not just as if, we'll, well, the reason we behave is so we won't go to hell. No, the reason we behave and want to walk in godliness is because we love God. Now, here is a text that is a great blessing. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give on the, unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. 
Years ago at Moody Church, I preached a message entitled, Hands in Harmony, namely the hand of the Son, the hand of the Father, together. Hmm. So once God regenerates someone and fills them with the Holy Spirit, but also seals them with the Holy Spirit, they are saved unto the day of redemption. Is backsliding possible? Yes. But in the life of a true believer, they will be the most miserable person on the planet, more miserable than the ungodly, because they'll know that they have offended the Lord who redeemed them. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, God chastises every son, and we could say every daughter, whom he receives. So there are many people who are listening right now who may think that they are saved, but they aren't. And the reason is because they can go on sinning without the slightest twinge of conscience. Those kinds of people were probably never born again in the first place. Yeah, phenomenal work here, Pastor. And the power of the Spirit that transforms this heart of stone into a heart of flesh and then gives us a deeper conviction still is is one of the greatest confirming evidences of the power of God, not in our strength to sustain our salvation. When you don't know, who better to ask than an expert? You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. Dr. Erwin Lutzer with us today. What a wonderful friend of God and ours as well. Amen to that. Just I, thought I'd throw a little mustard on that. <laughs> Allie looks shocked. <laughs> I, I just caught me off guard there. Pastor Lutzer is always, I feel like he's a friend of the of the city. True that. It's hard you know, to go somewhere where somebody hasn't been impacted by Pastor Lutzer. If there was a pastor to our city, he's right up there in the top handful that would be considered for that post. All right, let's get the question posed to him again. Hey, if God is all-knowing and knows what people need, why is it important to pray on behalf of others? Are we lobbying God, and can we change God's mind through prayer? Well, Allie, thank you for throwing three questions at me. <laughs> I knew that time. there were at least two. I didn't okay. know there were three. Should but we tackle I want one to at a time? Uh, read a passage of Scripture. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Then pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread, and on and on it goes. So there you have Jesus acknowledging that the Father knows all things, but he doesn't say, because the Father knows all things and he knows how everything is going to turn out, don't pray. What he says is, the Father knows everything, therefore pray this way. And we ask him for things, the Lord's Prayer, of course, and we recognize that there is a connection, a symmetry between God's knowledge and the fact that we should pray. Remember this, the real purpose of prayer is not to change God's mind. I'll comment on that in a moment. The real person purpose of prayer is to change us. It is our acknowledgement of dependence. It is our acknowledgement of seeking his face. God has everything in control. He knows what's going to happen. But prayer is designed to change us, the transformation in worship and so forth. Now, can we change God's mind? Well, 
first of all, thank you, Ellie, for asking such simple questions. <laughs> but um, can we change God's mind? From our standpoint, yes. In other words, God answers prayer. If you look at it from God's standpoint, of course not, because he knew all things, planned all things, and it's not as if he's saying, well, I was going to do this, but now you've convinced me, you've lobbied me to change my mind. But we must live with the tension of believing that God answers prayer, but at the same time recognizing that we aren't really changing his mind about everything, anything. In the, in the Old Testament, you know, it says that God regretted that he made man and so forth. That's, that's, that's all 32. in human terms. Yeah. We have to look at it from the divine standpoint where everything is under control. He's trying to help us to understand in human language his relationship with us. But at the same time, we come to a God who is not surprised a God whose purposes will be fulfilled, but we come in humility and we ask and we live with that tension. You know, Pastor, uh, then uh, explain from the book of the story of Jonah, where God saw that they had turned from their ways and he relented. That's how does let's use that as a proof text here. How would you explain that? Well, I would just say what I've hinted at before, namely that that's the way in which, from our standpoint, that's what happened. And therefore, it's presented that way in Scripture, that we might understand that God does respond to repentance, God does respond to prayer, but it would be wrong to think that uh, God had to wait until that time, until we prayed, to know what he was going to do. Yeah. God knows all things, both actual and possible. Therefore, there are no surprise. There are no surprises, and we must see very clearly that He is in charge. But He does ask us. Let's take, for example, even Jeremiah. You know, he he predicts that the uh, captivity is going to be seventy years. At the end of 70 years, God is speaking to Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, and they're crying up to God and saying, Oh, God, do something for Jerusalem. Well, whose idea was that? It was God's idea. They were echoing back to God his will, and God says, As you do that, and as you humble yourself, you'll become a part of what I planned to do at the beginning, namely the 70 years has come to an end. Carl, we can't unravel all of these mysteries because there is that synergism, that's a good word, between the eternal plan of God and we as human beings. What we must do is to bow before a God and recognize that prayer is really for us in that sense more than it is for him because guess what? He knows what he's going to do and according to him, it's all going to go according to his plan. Love it. Pastor Lutzer here with us. Pastor, I got an interesting question, I hope. The kids call it wrecked you. Um, when you look at the scriptures, what most moves you about the character or the nature of God? Oh, there's no doubt. It is mystery. You know, when I think of God, and I think about him often, and I try to 
come to grips with his eternality, for example, the fact that he had no beginning. I can't get my mind around that. Now, I did write an article showing it's much more logical to believe that God uh, is the one who began all things and has existed from all eternity than that the cosmos existed from all eternity on its own. It's much more logical to believe in God. But still, at the same time, you're always confronted with the mystery of God. And as we wrestle with these questions, and of course the purpose of the Bible has to do with redemption, buying us out of the slave market of sin, giving us a new identity, we always recognize that, but we always are confronted with a God who challenges us, a God who we do not fully understand, but we love. And we love because he has implanted that love within our hearts, whom having not seen, you love. And so that, I think, is what comes through to me all the time. I wake up every morning and I say, God, today I want you to glorify yourself in my life at my expense. I don't know exactly what the day holds, but it's your day. And so as I read the word, I try to focus on God, his promises, his love, but also his mystery. Coming to you live from the Morningstar Mission Sponsored Studios, this is Carl and Crew Mornings on 90.1 FM Moody Radio. We're calling it a week of Ask the Expert, and it has been amazing. We're so grateful that you're able to be here for this, and if you aren't able to pick up everything that you hear or all hours of broadcast, Just text the word show and we'll give you a collapse format of everything that's been responded to by Pastor Lutzer. uh, Text the word show to 312-274-9624. Show to 312-274-9624. Allie, let's get that question. Great question. Why has God allowed such disparity in regards to suffering of Christians around the world? Here in America, we don't begin to suffer like people, uh, Christians do in Africa, Middle East, China, North Korea, etc., What do you say, Pastor Lutzer? Well, that, of course, also is part of the mystery of God that we've been talking about. But when you ask the question, my mind immediately went to Matthew chapter 20, where you have the parable of those who go into the vineyard. And then when some complain that God is unfair, he says, cannot I do what I will with those who are my own? And, you know, the people that suffer they do have this advantage. People who suffer look forward to heaven. They oftentimes have a very heavenly point of view that we lack because you're right, we don't suffer like they do. And of course, the Bible would teach us that the greater the suffering here on earth, the greater their reward in heaven. So although we may think of them as suffering more, and certainly they do, looked at from a an eternal standpoint, it might look quite different to God. And those people who die die for their faith, they, of course, are greatly rewarded. So I'm not at all glorifying suffering. I don't want to suffer. I'm sure that our audience doesn't want to suffer. But we need to see, even in that, the sovereignty of God. And in the end, throughout all eternity, we are going to sing 
Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Hmm. Pastor, do you believe that sometimes we are, it seems if you look at uh, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, then my favorite King Josiah, you see kings that turn the blessing of God into idols, or they neglect to be thrust as Josiah was to the foot of grace. It seems that we in America have taken the very blessings of God and they've become the enemy of lordship. Yes, I am wondering when you say the enemy of lordship, you mean in the life of a Christian? In the life of a Christian. (laughs) Um, Here's what I want to say about America. America was never explicitly Christian, but we did have a Christian ethos. And what that did is it gave us cohesion as a country. We accepted basic values, the value of family, the value of freedom, all of these values. Today, that is being fragmented. It is being torn apart. So the idea also, and this may or may not be answering your question, but when I think about lordship, we are entering into a new era here in America. We're not used to persecution as we've been talking. But at the same time, it is going to be harder and harder for Christians to live out their faith in the public sphere without paying a price. For example, I just received a text some days ago from someone who works in a company, and he asked me, can a Christian sign this? And it had to do with a pledge regarding diversity and so forth. I said, there's part of it that you can definitely sign, but there are also parts of it that you cannot sign with a clear conscience. So you're going to have to go to your manager. You're going to have to discuss, is this necessary for me to sign this? I want to be nice to everybody, but I can't... uh, violate my conscience and call somebody who I know is a man. I can't call him a woman. And then are you willing to pay the price of obedience to do what God wants you to do and show that you love him more than even your job? These are the kinds of questions. And of course, we can talk about the school system and all and parents. These are the kinds of questions that we've not had to ask before but we have to ask them today. Yeah, that's really profound. Whether it's number one or 100, take that step with Jesus today. You're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings. Well, you've just heard our station manager, Matt McNeely, talking about this special pre-share offer that we have to get a copy of Carl's book for a gift of any amount. Pastor Lutzer, I know that you have really been excited uh, about Carl's book. You've read it and even wrote uh, an endorsement for it. Why have you been so blessed by this book? Well, because what it does is it resolves the tension that often exists in Christian circles regarding spiritual formation. Is it just a matter of discipline, getting up early, making sure you go through and check all the boxes? Or is it a matter of resting in Christ? It's all of grace. I think that what Carl's book does is it shows the relationship between the two better than any other book I know. 
And you'll be very proud to know, Carl, that in my hands right now, here on my desk, and I'm holding it up, is your book entitled The Seven Resolutions, which is, of course, your pre-share offer. So I encourage people to get this book. It's a good study book, and I think it is going to help them in resolving that tension and understanding that true change can happen through the power of God, but also we do we are involved with the disciplines of the Christian life. I love it. We got another question here, Pastor. We've got multiple questions. Allie's trying to sort through them right now. Um, the one that I have deals with the gifts that are given in the book of Ephesians. Pastors, teachers, evangelists for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. How can we best apply that? And as you see the church today, are we equipping saints and what can we do better to equip the saints for work of ministry, Pastor? Well, the first thing we can do is to take the focus off the leadership of the church, looking to them alone for all of our guidance, oftentimes looking to them to lead us in worship. And what we need to do is to form community with a sense of participation. Now, I'm going to wander into some territory that I should have the uh, wisdom to stay out of, <laughs> but there are some worship this. services where people aren't even singing because actually it's a performance on the platform. And so everybody is glued to the platform. Now, this might not relate exactly to the gifts, but it does highlight something. Worship should be corporate. Everybody should be involved. Of course, we're thankful for those who lead us in worship. Worship should be that way. But if we want to exercise our gifts, we also have to know that we do so and we begin within the body, recognizing that we are a part of a body and not just church attenders. And then hopefully churches have classes and so forth that help people to understand better their spiritual gift, the way in which God made them, and then, as far as possible, make sure that they are plugged in to ministry. And this is so critical. And I believe that pastors play a large role in this. When I was in uh, Bible college, my pastor out in Canada had me preach on a Sunday evening service. He asked me the previous Sunday, I said, he said, I want you to preach for a half an hour. I said, I don't have a sermon that's a half an hour. I only have three 10-minute sermons. He said, put them <laughs> put together. Them together. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. He said that. That's so good. <laughs> and I, I look back at that and I say, what faith that pastor had yeah. to let me preach in a Sunday evening service knowing that I just told him I had three messages of 10 minutes each, and he said, well, then put them together. But you see, and, and maybe this isn't answering your question, but what he did is he saw beyond the present, and he was able to discern certain gifts that I would eventually be able to exercise. And I think that church leadership has that responsibility. Love it. I think it has to go to young people and to say, you know, we believe that God's hand is on your life for this kind of ministry. 
And we need to encourage people and to let them know that, indeed, they are a part of the body, they are important to the body, and that, I think, is a responsibility, and then train them within that gifting. Fantastic. Okay, I want to get back to a question we set up earlier in regards to Judas betraying Jesus. So it was part of God's plan. Uh, So did Judas really have a choice in this? Allie, I was hoping that you would forget that question. (laughs) Well, I did for a second, I'm going to be honest, but thank you to the Boom Crew who reminded us. (laughs) If you ask from the eternal perspective... Judas, of course, was appointed for, uh, as a disciple, chosen by Christ. Jesus knew that he had a devil. He said that very clearly before the betrayal. Looked at in one way, definitely, he did what he wanted to do. And this involves some issues of free will that are way beyond our ability to get into this morning. But let's just say that Judas did what Judas wanted to do. And Jesus did give him an opportunity to change his mind. In the Last Supper, when Jesus identified him, it says, and Judas went out and it was night. And I think what John wants us to understand is not only physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. And If you're talking about epitaphs on tombs, and everybody should think, what do you want on your tombstone? Saul's epitaph would be, I've played the fool. Saul in the Old Testament said those words about himself. Judas's epitaph would be the words of Jesus. It would have been better for this man if he had not been born. So we might be able to not unpack the mystery between Judas's will and God's will, but everyone listening right now, now should quake in their boots and ask themselves, have you repented of your sin and believed on Jesus? Because if you didn't, like Judas, it would have been better for you that you would not have been born. So... Let's use Judas as an example of someone who made up his mind. All of that was used by God, of course, even predicted. But at the same time, let us not lose sight of the fact that Judas had responsibility for what he did, and for that he had to pay. I know this question is a fantastic uh, answer, Uh, but uh, there's a, a cousin to this, and it deals with what we find in Ephesians 1 and, and what we find elsewhere in the Gospels and in Paul's letters, give us your best two minutes on predestination versus free will. <laughs> I wrote a book in which I devoted four chapters on free will versus predestination. So you want a 30-second answer, don't you? I'll, I'll take it. So here it is. Here it is. I can do it in 30 seconds. Okay. I can even take 60. Okay. The Bible clearly holds us responsible. But at the same time, God does elect people to eternal life. And it is very clear that Jesus, that the elect are a gift to Christ. He says that multiple times in John chapter 17. But that does not absolve people 
of personal responsibility. And I'm using the word responsibility rather than free will for some reasons that we can't get into. But that means that we are fully responsible, God is fully sovereign, and what we have to do is to live with this synergism. And we cannot ultimately put it together because in our mind it is contradictory. But at the same time, we must preach human responsibility. We must give an invitation to believe to all who are listening, including all those who are listening to us this morning. But at the same time, back of all this, we know that there is the sovereignty of God who saves. And maybe that's the best I can do in one minute. That's tremendous. Thank you, Pastor. Find us on social media. Just search Carl and Crew Mornings on Facebook and Instagram. Got a question for Pastor Lutzer. Yes, someone texted in. I've lived most of my 69 years believing that I'm a Christian, but now I'm wondering if I have truly mourned over my sin. I'm guessing based on things they've heard this morning, now they're doing some wrestling. What do you say, Pastor Lutzer? Well, the real issue of salvation is whether or not we mourn over our sin as much as it is whether or not we acknowledge our sin and repent of it and turn to Christ. I don't think that it's possible to measure the degree of mourning. I don't think that mourning is a necessary requirement. Conviction of sin is, and mourning over it is a part of that. But it's not as if we have to analyze the degree of mourning Mm. as to whether or not we are saved. Because what you will find is that people, some people mourn over their sins more than others. It always comes down to a question. What am I trusting? Have I entrusted myself and all that I am to Jesus receiving his gift of forgiveness? That's what it comes down to. So it's good to mourn over your sin But it's something that can't be manufactured. I don't think that it can be measured as such. Uh, We have one here that is, this is a tough one that came in a while ago, but I'm going to ask it, and I don't have it in front of me, but I have the gist of it. Um, A parent was asking for a child. The child was baptized in the Catholic Church at the age of five. They're now going to an evangelical church, and the question is, uh, do I encourage my child? Um, I think that they're seeing something salvific about that Catholic baptism. Uh, Pastor, let's just tackle that one right here. What do you say to this person who is now at a, a, a Bible-preaching church and is wondering about the spiritual condition of their child? Well, There are two questions there. One is the spiritual condition of the child. The other has to do with baptism. I'd say this, is it okay for this child to be re-baptized with a different understanding of what baptism is? And the answer is yes. Acts chapter 19, you remember the apostles came and they uh, asked the people, you know, have you been baptized? And they said, yeah, we were baptized in accordance with the baptism of John. John. Yes, and they rebaptized them under the um, name of Jesus. So rebaptism is perfectly fine. And if your understanding of baptism was incorrect because you were baptized as an infant and now you realize that having savingly believed on Christ, you want to be baptized 
as they were in the New Testament, perfectly fine. Perfectly fine to say, I'm going to be rebaptized now that I have a better understanding, and now that I see it has a different meaning. Hey, this is Bart Miller from Mercy Me, and you're listening to Carl and Crew Mornings on Moody Radio Chicago. Okay, Allie, take it away, sister. Well, I thought that you, if you asked for forgiveness for sins, they were not remembered anymore. But at church, my pastor said that God is going to open a book and go over all of our sins. Is this a correct understanding? Am I not really forgiven until I get to heaven? Well, I think there's a confusion here. First of all, the opening of the books has to do with the great white throne judgment where unbelievers are, where a book was opened and another book was opened. You have two different books that we could explain. But for the believer, yes, legally, all sins are forgiven. And when we die, as the words of the song say, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. But that does not prevent God from judging us for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. Even today, legally, Christians are totally forgiven And yet God disciplines disobedient saints. So what we have to do is to put those two ideas together. Yes, your sins are wiped out, but also the question of rewards or lack of them will be adjudicated at the judgment seat of Christ for believers. Okay, uh, we've got a question here about... Uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's actually someone here that makes an implication that somehow Pastor Lutzer is against the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for which I know nothing could be further from the truth. Let's let's talk about this, though, because it's uh, D.L. Moody himself that had an awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit. When does the Holy Spirit fill a believer? And Pastor Lutzer What work of grace do we need to understand more and more each day, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life? You know, when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is always best to take the clearest passage and then to work out from that to the less clear ones. And um, my mind goes to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether bond or free, and have been made to drink of one Spirit. So I take the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be we are baptized into Christ. And that baptism occurs for every single believer. Now, what we need to do is to distinguish that from the filling of the Spirit, which is what we need day by day. You know, D.L. Moody said, the reason I have to be filled with the Spirit so often is because I leak. (laughs) So uh, the fact is that the filling of the Spirit, before I preach, I always pray. I say, now, Father, Jesus went to the Father and said, I pour forth the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith for this ministry. And that is available to every single believer. Everyone listening now can say, Lord, today I want to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit for my calling, no matter what that job is, no matter what the responsibilities are, I seek that. And that's what we need repeatedly. Moody and others had special experiences with God, and that is wonderful. 
and we thank God for those, and some of us have had those special experiences, but it's the day-by-day filling that enables us to walk in the Spirit. Get your info from a source you can trust. It's Ask the Experts Week with Carlin Crew Mornings. By the way, looking ahead here, we're going to have a giveaway of Pastor Lutzer's new book, No Reason to Hide, a wonderful book on how to stand for Christ in a collapsing culture. And uh, that is music to my ears because it's all about not running for a bunker in North Dakota, but standing for Christ where we are for sure. No reason to hide. That giveaway is coming up here in a moment. Okay, Allie, back to the questions yeah. here. A question about a specific uh, verse in Scripture. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, what does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? You know, Allie, there are all kinds of different interpretations of that, but I believe that when it says being born of water and of the Spirit— The word water doesn't refer to Christian baptism. That could have not even entered into the mind of Nicodemus. But rather, it is another word for the Spirit. Unless you are born of water and of wind, that's what the word Spirit is in Greek. It is the word wind. You are born of water and wind. What would Nicodemus think of? Well, he'd think of Ezekiel where it says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and we're water in the Old Testament, is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, unless you are born of water and wind, namely the Holy Spirit, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. So it is a poetic way, well, actually more than a poetic way, of describing the work of the Holy Spirit. But water and wind refer to the Holy Spirit. Good word. Uh, Pastor, quick one here. Once saved, always saved, true or not? True, understanding what saved means. I knew that was coming. Uh, I, I want you to explain that because I think sometimes it's that's foggy. Oh. Yeah. In other words, we actually covered this in a previous question. You know, we covered a lot of ground this morning, didn't we? Yes, we have. We have. (laughs) Yes. But when you're truly saved, you're given a new nature with new desires, a new desire to love God, to serve him. So we can't simply say, okay, once saved, always saved, because there are plenty of people who may think that they are saved, but they give no evidence of it. But for the truly saved, yes, Uh, He who begins a good work in us leads us all the way to redemption, takes us all the way to heaven. Yeah, this is fantastic. By the way, a quick comment came in here. Thank you very much for this epic morning of Bible study with Dr. Lutzer. He's always magnificent. I feel like I need to give an offering past the plate. Well, we're going to do that. Next week, we're going to pass the plate. It's called Share. (laughs) Because we are listeners support. I didn't want to miss an opportunity here, Allie. Uh, We are going to have share next week. So we're going to pass the plate. What does that mean? If you benefit from our programming here, this is why we put this epic week here, frankly. We just want to highlight for you the value that we try to bring every day here at Carl and Crew. And we're asking you to give. We're asking you to give to the work of the gospel next week. And uh, you can even get involved now. And there's a little pre-share 
gift of a book called The Seven Resolutions that we're going to get to you, and I'm going to sign it for every person that gets a gift in before Share starts on Tuesday morning. When it starts on Tuesday, my book goes bye-bye. But if you want to get that, I'd love to sign a copy over to you. And the way you do that is just text the word PRIME to us here right now. A gift of any amount will get that book out to you. That's a two-way offering plate right there. Yes, there you go. Text PRIME to 312-274-9624. This one has to deal with uh, prayer chains. This person says, how many people is enough, and they use enough in quotes, to pray for a need? Scripture tells us two or more, in the, and that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So are prayer chains and other things like that, uh, does that change God's answer to a prayer? The more people praying, does that increase God's likelihood of answering? That's a great question in light of the fact that we're asking 10 people to cover each half hour during share. Yeah. What do you say, Pastor? Wow, what a question. It's one that I've thought about, and I would say this. Let's keep in mind, while you're asking people to pray for share, and when you're asking people to pray throughout the country for a healing or for whatever else the need might be, God is not influenced by a Democratic vote. <laughs> he doesn't say, you know... There are so many people praying for this that, like a politician, I had better please my constituency. Mm -hmm. I would have, I would prefer fewer people pray, but to pray with a sense of faith and yieldedness than necessarily have a long prayer chain. Now, that being said, I fully support what you are doing there. You're filling half hours, and you're going to help the people to know what to pray. I'm sure that you will include in this a time of praise, a time of worship mm -hmm. as part of the half hour. And if you do that, people's souls will be refreshed. God will respond to them, and God will respond to you according to his will. So keep doing that, but let's not think that God necessarily is influenced by the largest number. It is the most devoted, worshipful number that he is pleased with. Great answer. Get your info from a source you can trust. It's Ask the Experts Week with Carlin Crew Mornings. By the way, looking ahead here, we're going to have a giveaway of Pastor Lutzer's new book, No Reason to Hide, a wonderful book on how to stand for Christ in a collapsing culture. And uh, that is music to my ears because it's all about not running for a bunker in North Dakota, but standing for Christ where we are for sure. No reason to hide. That giveaway is coming up here in a moment. Okay, Allie, back to the questions yeah. here. There, a question about a specific uh, verse in Scripture, John 3, 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, what does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? You know, Allie, there are all kinds of different interpretations of that, but I believe that when it says being born of water and of the Spirit— the word water doesn't refer to Christian baptism. That could have not even entered into the mind of Nicodemus, but rather it is another word for the Spirit. Unless you are born of water and of wind, that's what the word Spirit is in Greek, it is the word wind, you are born of water and wind. What would Nicodemus think of? Well, he'd think of Ezekiel where it says, I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, and we're water 
in the Old Testament is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, unless you are born of water and wind, namely the Holy Spirit, you'll not enter into the kingdom of God. So it is a poetic way, well, actually more than a poetic way, of describing the work of the Holy Spirit. But water and wind refer to the Holy Spirit. Good word. Uh, Pastor, quick one here. Once saved, always saved, true or not? True, understanding what saved means. I knew that was coming. Uh, I, I want you to explain that because I think sometimes it's that's foggy. Oh. Yeah. In other words, we actually covered this in a previous question. You know, we covered a lot of ground this morning, didn't we? Yes, we have. We have. (laughs) Yes. But when you're truly saved, you're given a new nature with new desires, a new desire to love God, to serve him. So we can't simply say, okay, once saved, always saved, because there are plenty of people who may think that they are saved, but they give no evidence of it. But for the truly saved, yes, Uh, He who begins a good work in us leads us all the way to redemption, takes us all the way to heaven. Yeah, this is fantastic. By the way, a quick comment came in here. Thank you very much for this epic morning of Bible study with Dr. Lutzer. He's always magnificent. I feel like I need to give an offering past the plate. Well, we're going to do that. Next week, we're going to pass the plate. It's called Share. (laughs) Because we are listeners' support. I didn't want to miss an opportunity here, Allie. Uh, We are going to have share next week, so we're going to pass the plate. What does that mean? If you benefit from our programming here, this is why we put this epic week here, frankly. We just want to highlight for you the value that we try to bring every day here at Carl and Crew, and we're asking you to give. We're asking you to give to the work of the gospel next week. And uh, you can even get involved now, and there's a little pre-share gift of a book called The Seven Resolutions that we're going to get to you, and I'm going to sign it for every person that gets a gift in before Share starts on Tuesday morning. When it starts on Tuesday, my book goes bye-bye, but if you want to get that, I'd love to sign a copy over to you, and the way you do that is just text the word PRIME to us here right now. A gift of any amount, we'll get that book out to you. That's a two-way offering plate right there. Yes, there you go. Text PRIME to 312-274-9624. This one has to deal with uh, prayer chains. This person says, how many people is enough? And they use enough in quotes to pray for a need. Scripture tells us two or more in the and that the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So are prayer chains and other things like that, uh, does that change God's answer to a prayer? The more people praying, does that increase God's likelihood of answering? That's a great question in light of the fact that we're asking 10 people to cover each half hour during share. Yeah. What do you say, Pastor? Wow, what a question. It's one that I've thought about, and I would say this. Let's keep in mind, while you're asking people to pray for share, and when you're asking people to pray throughout the country for a healing or for whatever else the need might be, God is not influenced by a Democratic vote. He doesn't say, you know... There are so many people praying for this that, like a politician, I had better please my constituency. Mm. I would have 
I would prefer fewer people pray, but to pray with a sense of faith and yieldedness than necessarily have a long prayer chain. Now, that being said, I fully support what you are doing there. You're filling half hours, and you're going to help the people to know what to pray. I'm sure that you will include in this a time of praise, a time of worship mm-hmm. as part of the half hour. And if you do that, people's souls will be refreshed. God will respond to them, and God will respond to you according to his will. So keep doing that, but let's not think that God necessarily is influenced by the largest number. It is the most devoted, worshipful number that he is pleased with. Late riser? No problem. Hear what you missed with the Carlin Crew Showcast. Find it wherever you like to stream. So how do you balance the call to live a sober lifestyle, but also enjoy the joy of salvation? This person is kind of taking issue with what he or she sees as a lot of joyless Christians walking around. How do we both be sober-minded, but also display joy? That's a great question, Pastor. It is. And of course, the key word to that question has to do with the word balance. The issue is this. Yes, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. The question is, is that satisfying and joyful or is it not? Now, if your joy is derived from the things of this world, your joy is going to greatly fluctuate. But there is such a thing as serving the Lord, even in difficulties, with joy. And that joy has to be derived from Christ. You know, when Jesus said, you know, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. Notice this. What he is saying is, it is not dependent on circumstances. And the joy of the Lord can come to us even in difficulty. And sometimes that joy is not contradicted by sorrow. You know, I was um, at a funeral recently. There was a lot of sorrow, but because this man was a believer, there was also a lot of joy. And those two are not necessarily negatives. So what we have to do is to say, Lord, make me a joyful believer and let me deal with all of the roadblocks There could be sin or other roadblocks toward that life of joy. doesn't mean that life will become easier, but the joy has to be derived from heaven to our hearts. It can't be self-generated. Here's another question that just came in, Pastor. It kind of transitions to a book giveaway that we're going to have of Pastor Lutzer's, by the way, No Reason to Hide. Standing for Christ in a collapsing culture, and this thing is going like cordwood out there, guys. But this question comes in, says, how, how do you live in a godless workplace in secular world today uh, in our public daily life? Um, I think what they're driving at here is how do we let, <laughs> how do we not let our joy get stolen from us in a really post-Christian steep decline morality in our nation that we're experiencing in workplace, politics, and the like? Well, first of all, I need to encourage that believer and say that you are where the church has been throughout most of 2,000 years. The church has always been an island of righteousness in a sea of paganism. 
For us here in America, it is a new phenomenon to some extent. But the question that you have to ask is, are you in the place where God wants you to be, doing his will in your job? And if so, what does God want you to bring to that in terms of your own inner resources? Now, earlier on a previous question, I gave an example of the kind of issues that people face in the workplace today. And maybe that's what this man is referring to. I won't repeat all that, except to say that that's the challenge to which God calls us, and we can't do it without Christian community. We need to be able to be with other believers, to be strengthened, to pray together, and then to say, there's a world out there that really challenges us, but we are supposed to be lights in the darkness. And what that means changes for every person. Everyone listening has a different context, a different background, a different vocation, but we have to ask God what that is like. And don't necessarily get out of the difficult situations taking the easy way. God may be calling you into the hard way and to be faithful where he has planted you. The implication in the title of your book, Pastor, No Reason to Hide, is that there is a tendency to hide when we have a collapsing culture. Why why this book and why do you think people are so grabbing it up right now? Is there this is there this growing fear in our society? Well, you know, if I might say, the book deals with all kinds of issues, uh, not only CRT, but diversity, equity, and inclusion, how that works against us, what the Christian view is of racism, and so forth. But in answer to your specific question, the reason that Christians are tempted to hide is because of backlash. The other thing is we're living in a society when being nice is much more important than being right or standing for truth. And so in order to appear to be nice, Christians often back down, hide in a corner, and say, well, we don't want to offend anybody, and therefore what we're going to do is to remain silent. My argument is this is not a time for silence. Of course, it's not a time for shouting. It's not a time for an irrational, angry response. But it is a time when... We have to let our light shine and take the consequences and consider it to be a badge of honor. So I discuss all those things. I try to help parents to understand what to say when their child comes home and says, I believe I'm trans. What we want to do is to help Christians live in this culture, but at the same time recognize that hiding and uh, so forth, is not the way to go. One other comment, when one Christian stands up and takes a position and raises the flag, there are all kinds of people who salute. So be encouraged, hold the light, and shine it where you are at, and other people, also other Christians, will be encouraged. Love it. Pastor, thank you so much. We're going to give away three copies of this book right now. This has been quite a morning, and we're going to go ahead and say goodbye to Dr. Lutzer. Doctor, I want to thank you so much for your time here today. This has been tremendous. Uh, we've, we know that we have a lot of people that have held on. 
Some might have even called in a little bit late to work this morning, just saying I need to listen to something, and we're grateful that you could stick around. For those of you that feel like, oh my goodness, I missed some things, I'm afraid. No, you didn't. You can get it anytime. Just text the word SHOW to 312-274-9624. Just text the word SHOW. Pastor, we love you. Thank you for the time here today. Thank you so much. God bless you. Hey, this is Carl with Carl and Crew, and I'm so grateful that you listened to this showcast. Thank you mostly for being part of the Boom Crew. As we help you take your next step with Jesus, you're a huge encouragement to us. We'll be here again live every weekday morning from 5 to 9 a.m. Godspeed.